Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Brian Bears, the founder of Bears Capital Management, a $5 billion long-only investment boutique that employs independent qualitative research on growing companies to build highly concentrated portfolios. Our conversation covers Brian's early life investing lessons, bootstrapping an asset management business, and finding product market fit. We then turn to his investment approach, highlighting target companies across business quality, management, and growth, the research process, position sizing, decision-making, and sell discipline. 
Lastly, we discuss the evolution of BCM's business from a micro-cap strategy to three strategies across market capitalizations today. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Bears. Brian, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we get started with your initial background and interest in investing? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, which doesn't really matter much to the story other than there's clearly an interest in Warren Buffett that was peaked. And that was kind of late 80s, early 90s before he became the international superstar that he is. My father was in the U.S. Air Force, and so we were stationed outside of Omaha, Nebraska at Offutt Air Force Base. At the time, Nebraska had a fairly robust effort to keep the top high school students in state. And so I was offered a full, full scholarship at the University of Nebraska, studied math and actuarial science. All the while was you know reading any reports in, in the evening and trying to, to hone my craft to the best of my own knowledge and came across the Berkshire Hathaway in reports, opened up my own self-directed brokerage account and started making all the mistakes that early investors do, but got those out of my system and my teens. And so felt like I got a relatively early start on my progression as an investor. Where did that initial interest in investing come from? I grew up in a household that was fostering of academic and other achievements. And my father was an eye surgeon, but also an entrepreneur. And so he was starting all sorts of random things that benefited his medical practice. And he would drag myself and my two brothers to these meetings and we would sort of absorb these high-level business conversations as, as youngsters. And so I think that sort of piqued my curiosity. He would uh, look at the 52-week low list and the Wall Street Journal and pick stocks for himself. And that sparked some questions. And then, and then I don't know, I think it was just a sort of a self-directed interest in business generally. I think I grew up in a, an environment of actually relative financial scarcity early. My dad was in medical school while I was growing up. I always thought to myself, I don't want to be in a situation where I have to have my freedoms constrained because my paycheck depends upon it. And so I think the entrepreneurial ambition that outed in Bear's Capital was really driven by a desire for, for financial independence. And that was just sort of coupled with an extreme intellectual curiosity in the stock market. So take me back to those initial mistakes that everybody makes. What are the most memorable ones for you? Oh, man, there's too many to list. I remember coming across this just random paper-based newsletter that talked about certain stocks and described them, and I would buy them on based on nothing more than just reading about them in some random paid-for newsletter that I'm sure was the self-selected Ponzi scheme type, and ultimately the whole thing is a scam. But you know, these were all names that I were not the headline names at the time. These were small cap stocks, which I think is probably a, a pointer in my history to our initial launch in micro and small cap. And so I sort of felt like there was some discovery value in coming across Buffett at an early age, but also I enjoyed the treasure hunt and the discovery value of, of finding some small out-of-the-way company that nobody had ever heard of doing something interesting that had the potential to be the next great company. So go back to that story. So now you're an early, early bird in this world. You go through college and what then? So I moved to Austin, Texas in 1996, and I was trying some entrepreneurial things straight out of college and spending all of my free time reading annual reports and doing my own common stock sort of personal portfolio research. And I thought about doing this Buffett model where you get a family partnership together, you know, with some friends and family money and start a professional career really early. But I made a very good decision at that time where I said, you know, I don't even know what the 
business looks like, what the infrastructure that is around being a professional investor. And it would behoove me to get some experience in this area before I really outed myself as a professional investor. And so I just happened to be reading the Dallas Morning News in 96. And it described a guy that was trying to build a quantitative model to pick stocks like Warren Buffett. And he was in Austin. He was relatively early in his growth as a professional investor. And so unannounced, I just sort of walked into his office and said, hey, I kind of want to do this for a living. And I didn't have a resume with me or anything like that. And I just happened to hit the right person at the right time. And he said, well, we don't have any money to hire anybody, but I do need a lot of help. And I said, well, why don't you just let me start working here for free? And then you can pay me when I become indispensable to you. And he thought that was a pretty good trade. And so I started doing all the things in an investment advisory operation that no one wants to do, operations, compliance, et cetera. But I just sort of took this, what's the word Ryan Holiday uses in his book, Ego is the Enemy. I think it's called an anthembulo, which is like a Roman, you know, clear the path sort of uh, patronage term. And that was the attitude that I took. Let me just make life easier for the people around me. And that is a really good recipe for success in life. You know, we've sort of talked to our our own team about that. You know, if you just clear the path for the people around you, work really hard, you're going to become indispensable very quickly. And so, you know, in six months, I was on eight bucks an hour and then got my first salary 12 months later and, and was off to the races. But I started work on my CFA. We went through an SEC audit. I got to build a trading desk. I actually wrote the prospectus for one of the mutual funds that we launched. And so it was this very immersive three and a half, four year experience and just the operations of an investment advisory. The good news about my background is that I, and this is kind of an, I think an important point is that I was always fairly personally frugal, having the scholarship to Nebraska, having a job in college and saving money allowed me this freedom to move laterally, to explore these intellectual curiosities and to end up being able to say to somebody, hey, I'll work for free for six months because I've got some savings that'll tie me over. And I think that that's super important. And then having worked for this firm for a couple of years, I saved probably half the money that I made there. And that allowed me the financial freedom to make a go of Bears Capital. And so I think that was pretty critical in the origin story. So circle back to that origin. There are so many people that would love to start their investment firm, and very few of them come to where you are today. What were the key success factors as you look back that you recommend to other people if they're going to try give this a shot on their own? Yeah. So, you know, the interesting part of my story is that I'm kind of an outsider. You know, I didn't have a stint on Wall Street. I was a state school person, never lived in New York. And so I actually do attract a fair amount of unsolicited phone calls that said, sort of, I want to do what you did. How did you do it? And so I think there's a kind of interesting story of we don't have any outside capital. All the capital that was ever put into my firm is $21,195.14 is all the paid in capital. I mean, the barriers to entry in our business are not financial, as everybody knows. The hurdle to getting to success in investment management are things other than the starting capital for the management company. But I've touched on a key point, which is you need to have some frugality early so that you have the scratch to be able to make a go of this for a couple of years. You need to have a fairly extreme amount of self-confidence, which I just happened to have at that fairly young age. And so you know, there are all sorts of people who are doubters who are going to tell you this isn't going to work. And then furthermore, most people say... I'll make a go of this. I'll use some friends and family money and I'll start talking performance, but I won't, I won't stop, start talking about myself to people until you know three to five years in and I have a track record and all this sort of stuff. And I, I always counsel people that that is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. If you have a great process and you have good people, I think the best allocators, especially in, I grew up in the institutional community, like the best allocators, they underwrite people philosophy process. They're not looking for 
the best five-year track record. If they were doing that, they'd be performance chasers and they wouldn't be successful. And so I say, go right after it, right out of the gate, start talking to people and, and, and try and make your mark. And I think that there has to be a certain, and excuse the phrase, product market fit in what we're doing. One of the key parts of my story is that I just happened to recognize after reading every single book in the investing section of Barnes & Noble, I came across the David Swenson book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, which is very seminal in, in the background because it sort of was like a cookbook for me on what modern allocators were looking for in an investment manager. And so that kind of gave me license of saying, well, look, despite all these consultants, gatekeepers, Morningstar style boxes, et cetera, what I was contemplating to optimize the future compounding of a portfolio might actually fit in a modern context in a direct relationship with a, a boutique like ours without scaled resources and assets. We could go to the Yale Investment Office and try and pitch what was at the time concentrated microcap, eight to 12 stocks. I mean, it was pretty new and interesting at the time. And it just happened to be that that was the moment at which lots of large institutional allocators started adopting what was then known as the Yale model or now is known as the endowment model. And has, I think, with the benefit of 20 years of hindsight, was a correct assertion that this would percolate to all corners of institutional investment management. So we just happened to ride that bow wave of concentrated manager adoption. You know, when I started in the business, it was still very much this 60-40 stocks, bonds, Morningstar style, box-driven view of the world, where uh, after the Swenson book and, and some of these Yale acolytes started going to large institutions, foundations, endowments, et cetera, they started to add these uncorrelated uh, equity-like return asset classes. And the public book started shrinking from 60% to something a lot less than 60%. But the constitution of the managers within that book started to change as well. And the 100 stock portfolio at 1%, those people were fired. And in its place were people like us, boutiques that looked a little bit more like hedge funds, high active share, highly concentrated, flexible, capacity limited, all that sort of stuff. And so we kind of, I think, rode the bow wave of kind of a new asset class, if you will, where concentrated managers started to be appealing. And so an interesting part of our history, which is just fascinating when you think about it, is you know, over 20 years, we've never had a formal sales and marketing effort. We don't have any you know, institutional salespeople on staff or anything. And we closed one out of every three conversations we had with institutional allocators back in 2000. And that's me walking into the Yale investment office with $600,000 in composite assets and trying to get money. We, we didn't get Yale, by the way, but I mean, the Yale acolytes were early supporters of us. And, and that's when the snowball got going. I'm sure there are a lot of people of that ilk who would love with a very small war chest to go in and be able to attract that capital. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the product market fit, you mentioned that wave and trend. What were the other factors, you know, before we get into the investing itself that you think allowed you to win some of that business? Well, I think that allocators are always looking for something unique and differentiated. Unusual usually produces unusual results and concentrated microcap, I think was pretty unusual at the time. And for me, without transitioning fully at this moment into the basics of what we do, the recipe of concentrated and the qualitative approach to investing that we practice was a pretty unique recipe at the time. There's a great blog out there called Wait But Why, written by Tim Urban. And he has one post about chefs versus cooks. And this is just a great mental model that I have layered on in all facets of my life, but it's particularly appropriate in business generally. The analogy is that a cook takes existing ingredients and follows a recipe and will produce a great tasting dish. 
but a chef looks at a table full of ingredients and tries something completely new with the existing set of ingredients and makes something new and fantastic. Well, I think in business generally, you get paid for being a chef a lot better than you get paid for being a cook. So I didn't invent the concept of concentrated portfolios. We did not invent the concept of qualitative research. We didn't invent the concept of being a small microcap investor. We didn't invent any of this stuff. We just put it together in a new way. And that new way was fairly unique at the time. And even today, it's pretty rare. There are just not that many people. And there are good reasons why. And if you explain these reasons, all of a sudden, you become even more appealing to this investor set. And the reason is that Goldman is not going to produce a concentrated microcap strategy because the total fee revenue potential is just a fraction of what a middle manager there makes in a year. And so for us in Austin, being fairly thrifty, being in a small sort of seedy office above a bar on South Congress, we could take that sort of economic model for a spin and it got me from zero to one in the business. And I think people were really drawn to the scarcity value. And then when, once we got our first client, the social proof of being in the community, I mean, that was the real key that unlocked the door. If anybody's listening, it's like the wannabe hedge fund manager. If you get a marquee first investor, it's a heck of a lot easier to grow the firm, right? I mean, it's that social proof is very prevalent, whether people like to admit it or not. It's really important to get the right types of investors behind you and supporting you. So let's start turning to the investment side. How did you come up with this interest in concentrated microcap back then? Well, what's interesting is the prior firm that I worked for was highly diversified and purely quantitative. And so it's exact opposite of basically what we do. And I sort of took Occam's razor to the entire thing. I said, okay, they were servicing 40 act funds and they had a wealth management piece and they had third party marketers raising institutional capital. And I said, if I just started from first principles and said, how do you optimally compound capital and how could I make that fit within this institutional and wealth management and 40 act fund world that I'm seeing. And structurally, I said, I don't want to be in the 40 act fund business because it's a regulatory nightmare. It's very high fixed costs. And if you're capacity constrained at some level, you're sort of removing the one benefit of being in the 40 act fund business, which is scale, right? I didn't like the wealth management piece because quite candidly, servicing individual clients is just a repeated exercise in explaining the basics of the stock market to people. And I don't like managing investor psychology. I like managing money. I like digging into companies and understanding the investment process and that sort of thing. And so that sort of removed the 40 Act Fund and the wealth management piece. And so I ended up with the institutional side. And I said, well, how with all these gatekeepers and stuff, how would concentration fit within this context? And the answer was, it was perfect for institutions because institutions use multiple managers, which obviates the need for any one manager to excessively diversify. And in fact, I was looking around going, everyone is way too diversified, just generally. And it's still probably the case. I mean, 10 equity managers, each holding 100 stocks, charging 1%, you're charging active fees and getting passive results. It's ridiculous. And so everybody should be concentrated. And then you had the academic research that supported this notion that high active share managers tended to outperform, that a manager's best ideas tended to outperform their worst ideas. And then, you know, I was a math major in college. The evidence is that after eight stocks, you're 80% diversified, right? So the 50th name in your portfolio is doing nothing to get you more of the free lunch, right? I mean, it's just a exercise in gathering assets to get more asset-based fees for a manager. You can have a diverse set of exposures and a diverse set of value drivers within the portfolio and be reasonably diversified with eight to 12 names. And so especially if you plug that into a multi-manager context for the institutional allocator, it just makes sense. And so I thought, okay, this would be the optimal way of compounding for the client. 
Now, is it possible, right? And that was where the Swenson book came in. It's like one of our first meetings with a consultant, they said, we don't even have a filing cabinet for you, concentrated, small and micro, like what is this, right? And then, oh, by the way, if we do underwrite you and we like you, you're gonna close at 130 million in capital and then we can put two clients in you and then we've done all this work and we get no utility out of it. And so there were all these things precluding this from evolving under the previous sort of regime. But Swenson and others that resourced a internal public due diligence effort had people directly talking to potential boutiques and managers saw somebody like me and said, we can do this. And not only can we do this, we should do this because it makes sense for the portfolio and it avoids all of these other agency issues between decision maker and manager. So how did you evolve from this diversified quant shop to the microcap focus on the investment side? Microcap originally came from time scarcity and resource scarcity in my world. And so I literally started out of the spare bedroom, my condo in Westlake, which is a suburb of Austin. And I didn't, you know, as I said, with $21,000 and paid in capital, obviously wasn't investing a lot in infrastructure and things like that. I had a laptop, some accounting software. Little known fact about my firm is for the first nine years, I didn't have an attorney. I was just so frugal that I didn't want to pay for one, which was, I do not recommend to people. I think it was completely reckless uh, course of action. And now we have great attorneys that we have great contracts and things like that. But our initial institutional contracts, I just negotiated myself. You know, I just thought I need to save every dollar I can because this is survival. I burned the boats. I didn't have a plan B. This was going to work. Right. And so had this laptop and this accounting software and this environment of financial scarcity, but also time scarcity. I had to do everything. You know, I had to do everything from balance account statements and charge fees and process this and that. And it was just me. And so if I'm also doing the investment research, I felt like I needed the best opportunity that I could have to, as a, just a single person, to underwrite these ideas and feel confident about the work that we were doing and eke out a very perception based upon research that, honestly, if I would apply that same amount of time to researching Microsoft or whatever, I wouldn't have been the 50th best analyst on it, right? Despite a fair amount of ambition, and I feel like I had a good understanding of what was happening, I just couldn't confidently say to investors at that time that we had some sort of legit variant perception. And then how did you think about within a concentrated portfolio, what you were looking for? What types of businesses and stocks? Yeah. So to move a little bit into what we currently do, the two differentiators for the firm are the level of concentration, which is still pretty concentrated, even by concentrated manager standards, but also this idea of qualitative research. And so if we just sort of step back for a second, it's, it's an often forgotten concept, but it's very basic and everybody should keep it at the top of their mind that stock prices are simply a reflection of internal compounding of business value per share right? Absent distributions and dividends and multiple expansions and contractions. Your experience as a common stock investor will mimic the per share business compounding that happens at the fundamental level, right? And so if you're looking for above average stock price performance, you necessarily need to be looking for above average business compounding. And above average business compounding isn't available everywhere. Uh, we're in a competitive marketplace and microeconomic theory 101 would dictate that if you're out earning your cost of capital, I'm going to open up shop across the street. We're going to compete on price until we earn our cost of capital over the cycle. Unless one of us has some unique competitive position and that can take all sorts of forms, orders by forces and network effects and all these sorts of things. And so we try to study these qualitative factors that would allow for exceptional business compounding. And those generally fall into three buckets, we think, which are moats, as I just described, competitive advantage, that sort of thing. Management, underwriting the people that are tasked with building the moat and growing the moat. And then finally, some under or unappreciated source of growth. Usually, a successful business can continue to internally compound capital exceptional rates far beyond the five or 10-year DCF model of the typical analyst 
or maybe there's some tangential internal efforts that are unappreciated by the people that are looking at a company, or maybe there's some M&A that's variable in timing and, and size that are, that are events that could be accretive to the company that are hard for the sell side to underwrite or to predict. And so those are the types of things that we look for. And so this qualitative aspect of the, of the research process is really driving what we do. We actually do, despite the quantitative aspects of my old firm and my math background, we do no computer screening or filtering. Like we started from A and went to Z in microcap. It took us eight years, but we did it. But we tried to optimize the time that we spent in this effort by sh- like sort of fishing in the lakes where we felt like there were a lot of fish. And so there are certain industries that are just more accommodating to high returns on capital than others. So, you know, precision instruments, information services, software, these are industries where most participants out earn their cost of capital over extended periods because there is something about the business, the industry itself, that just allows for exceptional returns. There's lots of product differentiation. The participants tend to be price makers rather than price takers. Their capital needs are typically fairly light. There's recurring revenue associated with most of the participants in the industry. And so we just focus a lot of time and energy on those fruitful areas first and have slowly built out our research on everything else over the last 20 years. People talk about moats all the time. How do you define what you look for in a moat? Yeah, we don't have a ton to add to the canon. I mean, this is a super hot topic and has been for five or 10 years. And there are people that think about this all day, every day that probably have a library of information that they can spout off the top of their head that could rival what we think of internally. What I can say is that anything that would allow a business to outer its cost of capital for a sustained period of time and keep competition at bay is interesting to us. We want to understand it. And so as we present companies internally, and by the way, we present companies solely on the basis of these qualitative factors. We're looking for exceptional, the best companies run by the best people with the best prospects for growth independent of price. So everything that we pre-qualify for purchase is done without any knowledge of what the stock price is or has been. And then once it's qualified for purchase on what we call our focus list internally, at that point, we do appraisals and we conviction weight in the concentrated portfolio, our highest sort of total return prospects. So in terms of the just the moat specifically, it's just like management or underappreciated sources of growth. We're just trying to do a deep qualitative analysis on what makes it special and exceptional. And that can be some traditional source of moat, like in Porter's Five Forces, they could have some unusual bargaining power over their suppliers or something like that. Or it could be something newer and more interesting where you have like you know, emerging network effects in a certain part of the business that's growing quickly or something like that. Um, but I don't think that our success has been necessarily in identifying moats that are completely new and untested and we're setting new standards for what new moats look like. It's most of the traditional work that has already been well described within the industry. It just happens to be that perhaps we're coming to that before those moats have fully matured. And it might be more of a bet on the emergent growth prospects of the moat. And so I think that that's probably where there's some differentiation for us. So let's turn to that growth potential. Maybe give an example or two of something you saw in a moat and had a differentiated view on, I guess, the duration and size of that growth potential? First of all, a typical analyst is learning how to do a DCF and they're not stretching out a DCF for 20 or 30 years, right? And so if you think about an analyst that's been underwriting Starbucks since inception or something like that, I mean, they're probably just continually wrong, right? I mean, they're continually wrong about the potential for the business and for 
the duration of the internal compounding and exceptional rates is just vastly unappreciated by all market participants at just about every point in the first 20 years of that business. And so those are the types of businesses that we want to own something that has the ability to compound at exceptional rates for a long time. And pricing isn't our differentiator. And so what I mean is, if you would have paid twice the market multiple for Walmart in 1974, you would have ended up with a phenomenal result, right? And so we don't throw pricing discipline to the wind. We want to buy everything at a discount to what we think it's worth. But we think the qualitative drivers of the potential story override, in most cases, the imprecision of a typical DCF. The very mechanics of doing a DCF usually lead to false outcome in the precision of them. And so we don't have a sharper pencil than everybody else on the appraisal. We just want to gauge as to whether something's kind of reasonably priced, overpriced or underpriced and act accordingly. And so we have found emergent businesses. We own, for example, 15, 16 years ago, I did a deep dive in the 3D printing space and owned one of the industry participants who was run by a bunch of engineers that had a really rational approach to setting up the business and turning it into razor blade type of a business with proprietary consumables. And we recognized that rapid prototyping was a niche case for 3D printing that would ultimately become rapid manufacturing. And it was going to have a very long-term disruptive potential that would provide tailwinds for the entire industry for a long time. And by going to the trade shows and stuff, you could see which businesses were set up just to sort of an investment bank and capitalize on the sizzle of the industry and, and which ones were real and had real economic models. And there was a clear kind of winner in that case. And so we bought the stock and it flatlined for five years and everybody was wondering about how smart we were in the space and questioning our thesis. And then it just hockey sticked and 3D printing was on the front page of The Economist and on front page of the Wall Street Journal. And it got caught up in a bubble of non-fundamental buying. And at which point we you know, exited the position, called it a success and, and moved on. But that's the type of business where I think anyone underwriting it at the time on an EPS basis or a next quarter's basis or even a next year's basis just kind of missed the potential for what was going to happen with the company. And then we've had other businesses where we owned a small software company that did POS systems for restaurants. And they had an internal effort where they were trying to capture the ISO charges that the distribution companies were capturing. And so they sort of glommed on this functionality to their POS system and started getting a recurring revenue stream from the actual swipes that were going through the system. And if you would have underwritten that business on some sort of quantitative metric, you would have completely missed this effort that was happening. You really needed to talk to the company. You would need to understand the motivations of the people involved. And it was a very successful investment for us, in part because that, that ISO credit card stream of revenue started to overwhelm everything else within the business. And so that was kind of an emergent and unappreciated source of growth that was a huge benefit for us. How do you underwrite management teams? Yeah, it's tough. So I sometimes explain this analogy to our allocator prospects and partners because they get it really quickly. The, the first time an allocator would underwrite an investment manager, they may meet the team and Typically, if you're in that room, you're probably reasonably successful and have some talents and things like that. And you probably walk away from that meeting going, wow, that manager, that team was really great. And then you do 10 meetings and you look back on that first meeting and you say, oh, maybe that person was average, but starting to get some reps in and I'm starting to see some emergent patterns as to what success might look like. And then you do 100 meetings and then you can start to distill the average from the exceptional. And the same thing happens when you're researching common stocks and you do the sort of qualitative field work that we do. The first company visit I ever went on, I thought, well, these people are amazing. Well, of course they're amazing. I mean, they rise to the top of a public company because you have some skill usually in sales and you can spin the yarn appropriately. And 
and then you do 10 meetings and you say, you look back on the first, say, well, maybe it's, it's not so great. And then you do 100 and you say, okay, I can start to see some emergent patterns. And so it's our goal for our junior analysts to get them up to speed as quickly as possible and get these reps in, which obviously has been more difficult during COVID having to do this over Zoom and remotely. But for 20 years, we've been just out in the field, unlimited credit card budget for the team. Just go out and meet as many companies as you can because you start to develop this pattern recognition. And so what are some of those patterns? Well, internally, we have a phrase that we like to use, an encore performance, where if somebody or a team has been successful somewhere and they've moved to a different company, it's typically a pretty good bet that they'll be successful again at the new company. And so that's one pattern. We obviously look for what a lot of other people look for in terms of the alignment of interests, the founder-owner-operator dynamic, where typically us as outside passive minority shareholders will be protected by a founder-owner-operator's stake in the business. And so there usually doesn't get some large option grant or misalignment of interests in the proxy or something like that. And so we obviously look at that sort of thing positively. The, the important thing I think to remember is a lot of our peers just sort of read a bunch of Buffett and say, well, we're just looking for great capital allocators, right? There's this idea, this sort of archetype, this Henry Singleton sitting in, a, in an office somewhere and just making these wonderful decisions on buybacks versus dividends or M&A and things like that. I think that's an important part of, of what we look for, but we extend that pretty significantly to operational execution. We want people who like to win, who have a plan for winning, who have a rational strategy for the future, have an ability to execute. And there's some data out there for us to point to that says, yeah, this is a high likelihood of, of executing. I'd love to hear an example of a time where you thought you had those qualities in a management team in one of the scarce positions in your portfolio. And you somehow got tripped up on that lens. Yeah, it, this happened a couple of times, usually in the M&A department, where you have somebody that's very successful and that has a hyper-rational approach to the business. They have a great business. They have a great moat. They have fantastic growth opportunities. But something happens to where they feel like they have an, an opportunity to, to glom on a significant acquisition to a business. And the data is pretty clear here. 80% of acquisitions fail to meet their intended synergy targets. And everyone thinks at the top of a business that they're special and they're in the 20%, but that's just not the case. And so we have had a couple of instances where we like the business, we like the people. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and there's a press release that there's just this huge needle moving acquisition that's happened. And that sort of shakes our confidence, unless that's an overt part of the plan. And we have underwritten as part of that plan, the ability of the people to do M&A successfully, it's typically a red flag for us. This is, this is not going to end well. I'm kind of curious about how this process works in such a concentrated portfolio. So you don't have screens. Your people are out meeting companies all the time. How do you digest that information to figure out what's going to be on your focus list? Yeah, great question. So we have a rotating stable of junior analysts. So we hire people and put them to work and then tell them in three years, I got to go find different employment. Part of that is because we have a capacity limited set of strategies and that capacity limitation has actually included returning capital back to investors. And so there's an element of expense management to what we do within our business. And that includes not having an upward path for everybody at the organization, right? And so that gives us fresh eyes on what is a relatively static opportunity set after 20 years. You know, it's dynamic and there's additions to the universe all the time, but it's helpful to just have fresh eyes of smart people looking at, at the stuff all the time. So we're constantly mining the existing universe plus any new additions or changes to the universe. And we're looking for those buckets of qualitative exceptionalism. And part of the fun of the job for me has always been the treasure hunt mentality. And I give our analyst team pretty much carte blanche to look at what they want to. 
And so there's much more detail in the work if you underwrite a position yourself and you have some confidence in that position, rather than if I said, go look at XYZ Corporation, you know, the, there's this bureaucratic question about, okay, does Brian want me to write up something good about this or bad or like what it's just now here, here's what we're looking for. Go take a look at the existing focus. Let's go meet with all the companies. Go start meeting with other companies. If you're going to Denver to meet with a company, stay there for four or five days and meet with every public company in Denver for four or five days, put three or four meetings a day on there and just get your reps, get, get up to that pattern recognition point where you can distill exceptional from average. And you'd be surprised at how often these sort of proximity site visits, we call them actually yield interesting results. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to come to the office and have one of our analysts say, Hey Brian, I went to Seattle to look at XYZ and I just happened to add these you know, this other company to the schedule and you would not believe the changes that are happening there. They got a new management team and they're trying this new effort and da, da, da. And that's interesting. It's a, that, that is something that signals to me, hey, this isn't in the Yahoo profile. You know, like screeners can't capture this type of information. There's a real opportunity for variant perception. And if it meets these qualitative criteria, let's do some further work on it. And so the work typically starts with what everybody else does, the reviews of the 10Ks and the proxy and that sort of thing. And we write up internally what we call a level one on the company, which is kind of an initial dossier that's not a full deep dive, but hey, is this earmarked for further research? And then if it looks good, we will have people go out to the company and do a full deep dive. I mean, we'll get really serious about it. We'll walk the factory floor, we'll train on the software, we'll go to industry trade shows and talk to users about what, what's happening with this business. And we'll get as deep as we possibly can to ensure that it comes to the top of the qualitative sort rank. And then all of that is distilled into a full presentation for the broader research team. And that presentation can last all afternoon. And it's usually 100 and 120 slides long. And it's a full deep dive into the company. And at the end of that, that conversation, we start with the least tenured person in the room so that there's not some bias about everybody wanting to please the boss. And if I tell my opinion on the name, everybody else is obviously going to fall into line. So I want to know the unvarnished sort of intellectual top to bottom on the idea, starting with the youngest person in the room and working their way up to me. And then we decide kind of gladiators, thumbs up, thumbs down. Is this one of the 30 best companies in the space? And that if it is, it goes on our focus list. And at that point we do appraisal work. And then the difference between us and other managers is despite my math background and the quantitative appeal of sort of rank ordering our focus list from price to intrinsic value, you know, sell the top, buy the bottom. Um, we let these qualitative factors really influence our portfolio management decisions as well. So we won't just prefer a 60 cent dollar over an 80 cent dollar to add to the portfolio. We have to look at that 60 and 80 cent dollar in two ways. First, our DCFs are imprecise tools at best. And so it's just an estimate. So 60 doesn't necessarily mean 60 and 80 doesn't necessarily mean 80. But secondly, like we have to couple that with a qualitative conviction in the, the go forward prospects to the business. And that really is informed by the strength of the mode, the sort of internal rating of the management and the growth prospects of the business. And if all of those are intact, we can let that price to intrinsic value bounce around and still make money. Whether something 60 cents in the dollar, 80 cents, or even 120 cents in the dollar, if it's the right business run by the right people with, with great growth prospects, the default setting here is just to, just to hang on to it. And there's actually a very little talked about benefit of having a strategy like this. And that is if you're an investment manager and you're catering to an institutional audience, what most people don't realize is that if you're this kind of event-driven or idea-driven investment management company, 
you're pitching an idea, for example, to an allocator, and that idea may be stale by the time the allocator actually makes an investment, right? There's this time disconnect. But if you own long-term compounding companies, you can be a little bit wrong on the price and still make money. And so if we have an allocator that looks at us and they start work on us and it takes them three months to do their due diligence and another three months to get the board approvals and then they finally allocate capital to us, they can have some confidence that they're buying a portfolio of businesses that's not fully matured and that the opportunity is behind them as they're giving us money. So we have this kind of side benefit of having this continual opportunity for people to allocate capital to us and still take advantage of a portfolio that in theory, and if we play our cards right, is always affording decent go-forward opportunity. So it sounds relatively simple if you lay out, okay, it's moats management and growth prospects. How do you score these things like on a relative basis? Because each one is its own kind of multivariate equation. Yeah, it is simple, but there's a difference between simple and easy, right? It's not easy. It's not easy because you have to do your own work here. I mean, we're not relying on the sell side for anything. We're not relying, we don't scrape other managers, 13Fs. We do all of our own work from start to finish. And it took us eight years to get from A to Z to do qualitative analysis on these companies and build up this library of information. We have made certain attempts at trying to score these various things quantitatively. And every time I try to layer a quantitative element onto this qualitative process, it sort of backfires for us. And so we've stopped doing that. It is really about pattern recognition and about getting the cumulative experience to tell exceptionalism from average. And so we try to avoid that, but I suppose there is in that distillation process, some comparison and thus some some measure of scoring. There's a slider sort of, so to speak, from zero to 10 on each of these buckets that every now and then in our discussions, we'll say, well, this is definitely like a 10 out of 10 in management or something like that. And so it's evidence that people are doing that on our team, kind of scoring it a little bit, but we try to get away from the quantitative overlay here. So before we get into the portfolio construction, when it comes to maintaining the focus list, at any point in time, I'd imagine these are the 30 companies in your universe you think are the best businesses, and then another one comes up. Do you just drop off the 30th to keep it at 30? Yeah. So it sort of slinkies around 25 to 30. I mean, if a business gets acquired or something like that, we don't immediately your market for replacement. So we try not to be penny wise, pound foolish here. I mean, it's just, it's a, just, hey, what are the 30 best companies in the space? It's kind of a mental model. And then if that number is 32 or if it's 29, that's fine too. But the interesting thing is after 20 years, it's just getting harder and harder to qualify for the focus list, right? I mean, and that's a symptom of us doing well, right? And it's kind of frustrating. If you think about it, it could be the perfectly rational byproduct of a process well executed that an analyst comes and works for us for three years and doesn't get anything advanced to the focus list, right? I mean, that just could be, hey, you know, you're doing your job and every rep is part of the process, even if those reps are not accretive to our focus list or ultimately the portfolio. The flip side is also true where you'll know what pressure is when you are a junior analyst for us and you come across the idea of a lifetime, it gets advanced to the focus list and all of a sudden we have a 20% position in the name. That is very possible. It happens all the time. And that is a fair amount of pressure for you know somebody who's 23, 24 years old. But I wouldn't have it any other way. And that's what makes this business fun, right? I mean, it would just be bonkers for us to have 100 stocks and then know that our 100th position is a 0.003% exposure for the ultimate institutional allocator and just meaningless in the context. I don't want to do that. I want what we do to be impactful, good or bad. And that causes sometimes some painful 
months, years, I mean, we've had multi-year underperformance and that's pretty painful and people start to get their confidence shaken and the institutional allocator dynamic around that is, is very painful. It's particularly painful when you have allocator teams that have underwritten you that look you in the eye and say, we're long-term perpetual time horizon, we're your perfect investor, Brian. And then six months later, they take a job at a, at a uh, different foundation or endowment. And that's, I mean, I get it. It's perfectly consistent what they want their careers to be. But all of a sudden, we're left reselling ourselves to a new team that didn't underwrite us. And perhaps that coincides with the period of underperformance and it can be difficult. And so we've lived this privileged existence for 20 years where we haven't really had to have a formal sales and marketing effort or anything. And we've been pretty successful because of our performance. But we've had had periods of outflows that have been painful. And, and then we usually follow that up with some phenomenal period of performance that leads to inflows and you know, life goes on. So how do you turn from the focus list into that decision of what makes it into this concentrated portfolio? That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, that's the hard part. And most managers try to take judgment out of this process and they just buy the cheapest price to intrinsic value and then buy their $0.50, cent dollars, sell their $0.10, cent dollars, watch, rinse, repeat. And it's an easy sell to the allocator because they want to see some confidence in the repeatability of the process. And everybody has this artificial confidence that this will continue to work. But that's just not reality. This idea of qualitative equivalence among your opportunity set is the biggest mistake that most managers make. ABC at 80 cents on the dollar is not the same as XYZ at 80 cents on the dollar. They're different qualitative businesses. They're different competitive advantages, if any. They're different management teams and their strengths and they're different growth opportunities. And not all of that can be captured into a DCF. So we just are constantly trying to make these qualitative contrasting judgments and using our, our best brain cells to try and, and sort out what has the best total return potential and then trying to size according to conviction. And so what it typically looks like is a 8 to 12% kind of starter position, and then we'll ramp it up to 15% or perhaps high teens if we're really convicted in the name. And then we have kind of a, let's call it a gentleman's agreement among our clients, excuse the gendered language there, but you know we say 30% is our hard cap. And so nothing gets over 30% of the portfolio by weight will automatically start scaling it back. So one thing we really haven't talked about at all is price. These are, in your estimation, the best businesses in your universe with great management teams and great growth prospects. You might not be the only one who discovered it. So how do you factor price into your portfolio and assessment? Yeah, we want to be disciplined about what we pay and we want to pay for less than what we think the business is worth. Unfortunately, we have been subjected to the torture and it has been torture over the last 10 years of watching the most expensive names on our focus list outperform the cheapest names by a long shot. I mean, if you are value factor focused, you have had a very, very difficult run over the last 10 to 15 years. And I'm not saying anything earth shattering there, I don't think. And so the good news is that the qualitative framework that I just described does allow us to make these qualitative convictions that are as or more important than the price to value disparity. And so we have bought 85, 90 cent dollars where we were just super convicted in the quality of the business. And that has paid off for us and is one of the reasons that we have probably better numbers than people that are more value factor focused. You know, when I, I hate it when people ask us, are you a value manager, growth manager, whatever? It's just like, look, growth is part of the value equation. We are value philosophy because we want to buy stuff for less than it's worth, but we are not value factor investors. I think if you look at the Fama French three-factor model, price to book has just stopped working. And some people say, well, we're ready for the ultimate mean reversion there and come up and this is going to be huge when it happens. And my contention has always been that perhaps the market's getting more efficient and that 
low price in relation to book value is just a, a symptom of a business that's under earning on its capital base and potentially in permanent economic decline. And maybe everybody's realizing that, right? And so that's one of the great things about ignoring price as an input to our process is that we don't get led into these value traps. I mean, most managers, if I tasked you with you know, starting a small cap strategy and you have the Russell 2000 boundaries as your market cap universe, you might just start with a simple screen. Like, and, and usually that screen involves price, price to earnings, price to book, EBD, BIDA, something like that. And that's going to lead you into businesses that are probably under earning on their capital base. And that's the symptom of a, a market that's gotten more efficient. And so one of the great things about a process is we just ignore price as an input to the process. And that allows us to just focus on best businesses, best people, because the biggest mistake most people make is in the pricing or the appraisal of the business. And so if we're a little bit wrong in that appraisal, we can still make a lot of money because your experience in a common stock, the longer you hold it, is going to be the internal compounding of business value and not the beginning price. With a huge caveat, we're not running out paying 50 times revenue for some business that even with the most optimistic assumptions, we couldn't justify the current stock price. What are your holding periods like? We want to buy with the intent of holding for a really, really long time. Very fortunate to have a largely non-taxable client base. And so we don't really have to manage to, to low turnover. We consider ourselves low turnover. For example, we had one stock in the portfolio for 18 years. But what I will say is that if you look at the numbers, we're actually roughly about 30% turnover. So it's thinking in a 10 stock portfolio, about three new positions per year but it's not tail wagging dog. We're not managing to a number. We're just trying to do what's rational. And that's just kind of how it's worked. We're in the public markets and every now and then we get really lucky and the evolution of investment thesis happens in a fairly compressed time period. And boom, you know, we're out of the name in 18 months. And then other times maybe we've made a mistake and we blow out of the name pretty quickly. And so that's influenced the turnover number, but we've had some years where there's zero turnover other years where it's higher, but in general, it's probably three new positions a year. And in these types of names, certainly in the microcap strategy, you'd imagine that the stocks could be very volatile. And I'm curious how you've traded off the potential for liquidity with optimization of position sizes. Yeah. In the smaller companies, you are and sometimes limited by the liquidity, um, by either the daily liquidity and, and how much of, of that you want to be, or by the overall market cap and your inability to actually take this sort of position size that you want in the portfolio. I think there are trade-offs, and one of the trade-offs for being in smaller companies is that liquidity, but the opportunity tends to be also a little bit greater. So we have had situations where, and I could go on and on with war stories, where we bought a name at seven bucks a share and had to get out at one, and the liquidity dried up, and it took us nine months to get out of the name, right? I mean, it's the Roach Motel. You can get in, but you can't get out, and that's just part of the game. Fortunately, we, we have reasonably long-term investors and they all understand that that is part of the game and will liquidate their portfolios. So for example, if they leave us because we want to make sure that we're cautious and measured about how the liquidity impacts happen. And then likewise, when they give us money, it's typically in tranches so that we can sort of ease it into the names that we have in the smaller companies. You know, kind of traditional thinking of asset management, if you're right, 55, 60% of the time you end up being a hero. I'm curious if that is the same math in such a concentrated portfolio. Yeah, our batting average is like 65%. That's been the historical sort of win rate. And probably the interesting thing about being concentrated is that when you are right, you're usually really right. And that can have outsized magnification of the performance numbers. And so if I look back, it's, it's not quite Buffett, where if you take out the best four decisions he's made, his performance would be no better than average or whatever that quote is that he says. But you can point to 
10 correct decisions that we have made that have largely powered the returns of our strategies. So if you're buying into names that aren't necessarily cheap and then you're holding them, how do you think about sell discipline? Yeah. So our, our sell discipline is probably, if you've seen the sell discipline slide in a manager's deck over and over again, it's probably not that different than other managers with one exception. So we'll sell if something gets wildly overvalued. We'll sell if we made a mistake and we'll move on. And, and then obviously the most common reason is there's some relative value trade that's available to us that you know, we'll sell a more overvalued position into a more undervalued position that has better qualitative characteristics. The big exception here is that we're going to let the qualitative override and our default setting is to hang on to positions. So if something's 120 cents on the dollar, 150 cents on the dollar, you're going to find that we're going to hang out of those positions just because, again, we feel like the pricing piece of this and the appraisal piece is usually the weakest part of any manager's process. And so if we've truly found the next Starbucks, wouldn't we feel stupid just because we sold it at 120 cents on the dollar uh, you know, with the hope of going back and buying it again at, at 60 cents? Like, I don't know any manager that has successfully traded around a long-term compounder and really juice the returns by buying at 12 times earnings and selling at 25 times earnings. As you go through this process, there are a lot of aspects that other types of managers would, the proverbial lose sleep at night, you know, owning a $150 dollar or things like that. When you get nervous about what might be to come, what are the aspects of your process or the portfolio that tend to give you the most angst? Well, your listeners can't see, but I have a head full of gray hair. I get nervous about everything. I get nervous about making sure that we have the right clients, that we have the right people on the team, that we have the right investments, that the, those right investments are, are, are fit for what people are paying attention to, that we truly have varying perception. I, I worry about all this stuff. So this is a business that is not only overwhelming because every day you wake up and you're drinking through a fire hose of information, but it is also an endless stream of worry. And so the big worries for me are making sure that we have the right team that that team is excited and incented to get up and work every day and that we have the right investor partners. I had friends that you know, ran funds that through 0809 had Lehman Brothers as investors and that sank the firm. That's a huge piece of this is just making sure that you have the right partners. Yeah, I mean, I worry. I guess I worry about it all today. How has the business evolved? Because clearly when you start with just a concentrated microcap strategy, you mentioned the number, I don't know, $160, 180000000 million. That isn't something that ever really scales. So how did you think about evolving past that and maybe describe where you are today? Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion, actually. So we were a single strategy firm. We had concentrated microcap strategy and we were very successful and we gave money back to investors periodically. And we had this discussion with investors and said, do you want us to keep holding these names as they exceed the microcap? All of a sudden you, you buy a $150 million company and you wake up one day and it's a $2 billion market cap. It's not really microcap anymore, but we feel like we have great research on the name. We feel like we have varying perception. You know, I, as a person, would love to keep holding this company. And what's interesting is despite having sort of similar DNA, our client base had varying responses. So some of our clients sort of bucket by market cap and they say, no, no, look, we like you because you're, you're micro cap and we like the opportunities inherent in micro cap. We had others that said, we just like alpha generation. I don't care if you invest in companies in Singapore, we just want your best ideas. And so I was faced with a choice where I, want, I always want to maintain our promises that we have made to investors. And so we kept microcap strategy, capacity limited, redeemed capital back to investors, but took the library of information that was now clearly small cap as the market caps grew for these companies that we researched both in the portfolio and on the focus list 
and formed a small cap strategy and just offered that to investors. And then the same thing happened in mid-large in 2014. And so today we cover the waterfront of, of, of market cap in the US. And, and so I think a lot of endowments take the approach that we only invest with single strategy firms. And I get that, but I would argue vehemently against that. I think there's been huge benefits to us having the various strategies and the benefits are to both us and our investors in that it has kind of removed operational risk, right? I think every investor wants you just to pay attention to them, right? Um, But they also want a robust infrastructure and they want the diversity that comes with a large client base and they want staffed operations and compliance effort and all these sorts of things. And so what's interesting is that when one strategy is yanging, one is yanging, and it gives our team a robust confidence in the fact that hey, I'm still going to have a job here if we have a prolonged period of outperformance. Our ops team is still going to wake up and do the excellent work that they do every day. All of our investors are sure that there's no existential implosion risk from the actions of a quarter or a, a year of underperformance. And then additionally, the actions of other investors are actually minimized. And so most people don't know this, but like large institutional allocators tend to act in concert, but they're also in this game theory problem where if there's, you know, five investors in somebody's fund, everyone's sort of pointing at each other, wondering what the other is going to do. And if there's a redemption, then everybody talks to each other and says, wait, and it sort of exacerbates the, the Porter's five forces problem that these managers have. And so uh, for us, it's been very helpful in having these multiple strategies. It's allowed us to maintain our promises to investors, to produce good results with all of them. And I think the important thing is to maintain the level of concentration. You make a promise about that and to stay flexibly sized for the opportunity set. And the knock-on benefits of having the multiple strategies has it's increased the robustness of Bears Capital generally. In the context of concentrated portfolios, there are times, and this is certainly one of them, when your investors will be paying attention to things like ESG factors and diversity and inclusion, probably the two most notable ones today. How do you think about integrating that when the number of companies you're investing in is small, the number of people on your team is small? Yeah. So we, despite our small size as a team and relatively small size, I mean, we're an institutional asset manager with five and a half billion under management today. And that's small by Wall Street standards, but it's a decent sized firm now. We have actually just become a signatory to the UNPRI. And so I think that that fits well within our research process because we're not precluding ourselves from really buying things that we would have otherwise. Uh, it requires a little bit more documentation, but uh, at the end of the day, I think it's where the puck is going in, in institutional investment management. And so we want to be good partners to our clients who are most of whom are also signatories to that. And so ESG is becoming more of a highlight. We are not advocates. We aren't taking activist positions and trying to change policies and things like that. But most of the businesses that are pre-qualified on our focus list are pretty compliant anyway. And so it, it's not a heavy lift for us. So that's a change. And in diversity and inclusion, one of the issues we've had is I think what's referred to in the industry is kind of a pipeline problem where we have made this effort for years to try and increase the diversity and inclusion elements of the hiring process, but the hiring pool itself hasn't been serving up what we need. And so we have started an effort which targets further down into undergrad, like sophomore year undergrad, and so that we can formally train people up within the organization over the summer with paid internships that give those people a bit of a leg up in the ultimate hiring process when they come out of undergrad. And so this summer will be the first 
round of that. We're calling it the BCM Accelerator Program. And we already have three people signed up for it and we're super excited about it. And so it's just yet another business challenge among many that we're tackling. All right, Brian, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, I'm very fortunate to live in Austin, Texas. And so there's a lot of fun outdoor activities that are available to us. I live on the west side of Austin, which is close to the lakes. Most people don't know that Austin's got all these great recreational lakes around the area. And so I picked up a couple of years ago, wake surfing, which is you're basically on a surfboard in a boat that is designed to throw off a surfway where you drop the rope and you can cruise at 11 miles an hour behind the boat. And for a 47 year old, I guess it makes me feel young. That's been a hobby I picked up a couple of years ago. What's your most important daily habit? I got into meditation a couple of years ago. I know that's probably a common answer for a lot of people these days, but just the endless redirection of my attention has become kind of annoying over the years, right? Where you have this constant stream of IMs, phone calls, texts, you know, I've got three boys and wife and they're, they're pinging me during the day and that sort of thing. And so I think meditation has helped me redirect that or, or get back into a state of focus after a series of attention distractions. What's your favorite book? I picked up Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance again a little while back, and I seem to gravitate towards that book every four or five years and reread it. There's something in that book for every stage of life, and I always pick up something new in that book. I mean, there's you know, the wanderlust of youth, the challenges of parenting, the a discussion of work and life values and quality and all these sorts of things. And so I usually find something interesting in that. What is your biggest pet peeve? My biggest investment pet peeve is when people buy our stocks based on our 13F. <laughs> it's not for the reason that you might think. I mean, yes, we do a lot of work and we build all this IP and then 45 days after the end of the quarter, it's freely available and public knowledge for everybody. And so that that's kind of an annoying byproduct of our business generally. But the real reason is that I usually get somebody, friends, family, or somebody that I don't know saying, hey, I bought XYZ because you own it. And all of a sudden, I'm in a no-win situation because as we discussed earlier, 65% batting average is not 100% batting average. And it's Murphy's Law that whatever they buy does poorly. And I didn't tell them to buy it. I don't want them to buy it. Yet I take on this burden of ownership of that investment outcome. And so that's super annoying. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mom is the most pious person that I've ever met. I grew up Catholic and she's a, a very intense mass-goer. And her expectations for us growing up were very high in terms of academics and achievement and so forth. But they were even higher for values, integrity, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't an aspiration to be an honest person. It was an expectation. And that was hugely influential in my life. And then my dad is a natural contrarian, which I love about him. As we talked about, he buys stuff off the 52-week low list. And he's an eye surgeon and an entrepreneur. And he never really cared what anyone thought of him. And I love that about him in a good way. And so I think that gave me the confidence at 27 to go out and start a business despite having a bunch of doubters in my circle. And just to tune all that out, ignore it and go for it. So yeah, I think that's, that's what I've learned. Great, Brian. I got one more before I ask you about mistakes for our premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I wish I knew how important public speaking would be to our job. I suffer a little bit of anxiety from public speaking, and I don't think that's uncommon. Being a state school person from Nebraska and feeling like kind of an outsider, I've probably had this psyche filled with imposter syndrome my entire career. That's probably fueled the insecurity a bit. But what people don't tell you about being an investment manager is not only are people underwriting your ability to execute on an investment portfolio and to run a business, but every now and then you have allocators that are underwriting your ability to go to their boss, to their CIO, to their board, or to their clients and to communicate what you're doing. 
And those are high stakes situations. I found myself at the Plaza Hotel three years ago talking to 500 people. And my knees knocked when I talked to 10 people 20 years ago. And it was a very difficult road for me. And it was all about just reps and practice. And to this day, I still have some of that fear, but that's been the hardest thing to compensate for. And I wish somebody would have told me that a lot sooner so that I could I could practice and get better at it earlier. I think I would have been more successful. Brian, thanks so much. It was really great. Thank you. All right, I got one more for you. I know we've talked about some mistakes, but what's been your biggest mistake and what did you learn from it? Could be personal or investing. I think my biggest mistake, and it's probably going to sound kind of strange, is has been a failed attempt to be present in my life. And what I mean is I have this subroutine running in my head all the time, and it is risk management. It's what could go wrong here, both personally and professionally. What could go wrong here? Constantly thinking about backup plans and potential outcomes that are negative and how can we mitigate those. And at the same time, I've got this subroutine going about the future prospects, future planning, and what could happen if things go right and what should we be doing to optimize for the future. And that's not how you're supposed to live your life. (laughs) It's just not how you're supposed to live your life, right? I mean, you're supposed to be present. You're supposed to have gratitude. You're supposed to have awareness and meditation helps a little bit with that. But it's been a continual process for me of fighting that. I mean, I will find myself at my kid's basketball game and I'll be watching my kid hit a three-pointer and I should be excited for this, but instead I'm thinking about work or other things personally and I'm just out of the moment completely. And it has impacted my business life because I've had some business success and I haven't enjoyed it because I'm constantly thinking about the downside, the risk management or the future planning or the future optimization. So I know it's kind of an unusual answer, but it's probably my biggest mistake is not just being present and having some gratitude for the great things that have happened to me. That's great. Brian, again, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 